Hey folks, welcome to the podcast of this week's show. Two guests on the program today. We're going to hear from Tony Crane of the Mersey Beats, but before him, Dan Perloff of CopyrightTerminationExperts.com. This is, you know... Folks getting ripped off and never making money from their music is sort of a story we hear too often when I'm interviewing people. So uh, when I heard what Dan and his law firm that he works at are doing, I thought, oh, this is worth broadcasting uh, and telling the folks about. He'll explain it, but uh, there is a little-known U.S. law that Dan uh, and company exploit, uh, and uh, it'll help some people, I, I'm I'm pretty sure, get their, their rights back to their creative work. So first we're going to hear from Dan Perloff, and uh, then we're going to hear from Tony Crane of the Mersey Beats, uh, just a contemporary of the Beatles, and uh, some funny and interesting stories and great music. Uh, I ran into somebody at a party this weekend who said um, that the podcast doesn't always include back announcing of the songs, because there are different rules about playing songs on a podcast than there are on the radio, which is the reason that... uh, the format is different in that uh, music is not featured uh, in the in the podcast version. So if you want to hear all of that, uh, head to WFMU.org slash Michael and listen to the archive of the whole program and uh, you'll sort of get filled in forwards and backwards, uh, I promise. Uh, some great guests coming up. Check WFMU.org slash Michael for the, like I said, for the archives, but also for the list of upcoming guests. Okay, first Dan Perloff. It's not very long. And then Tony Crane of the Mersey Beats. Thanks. Dan Perloff, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? Uh, good. Thank you very much. Big fan. Yeah, I know you live out in L.A. You, you, and, you and I are old friends. Am I right that you have worked in record retail? What record store did you work in? Moby Disc. Out in L.A. for our L.A. friends. A wonderful uh, chain that is still exists sort of in some way. Uh, you've worked as a manager for bands that, uh, that we play on this show. You've worked at giant record labels and small record labels and promotion companies and... Uh, all over, all various things uh, in the music industry. And you're doing this thing that interests me right now and something that can help people, and that's why you're on the show this morning. I was trying to describe it earlier, uh, and I don't really have the exact ins and outs of it, but basically people who put out a record on someone else's record label after a certain amount of time have become eligible, could become eligible to get the rights to those recordings back again uh, because of some obscure law. And you work at a law firm that is helping people do this for absolutely free. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. It's a 1976 law. It's a 203C. I'm not an attorney, but I work for one. And it's that's the 35-year U.S. copyright termination. That has to do with both publishing and sound recordings. This is good for the tiniest record label or the giantest record label? It really goes for everybody. I mean, obviously, the majority of the work we do, the terminations that we send in go to the three biggies, Universal Music Group being the biggest, and then Sony and Warner Brothers, Warner Music Group, and they've you know uh, accumulated numerous labels along the way. What you're actually doing is terminating the grant that you signed with the original label. So you signed with Island Records, in 1978, you put out a record in 1978. 35 years later, it, you could you know, terminate it. Um, you get the U.S. copyright. There are you know, certain ways to do that. You need to give a minimum of a two-year notice or a maximum of a 10-year notice, uh, which means at this point in time, we're working with people that put out you know, recordings or publishing, things that were released in 
say, mid-April uh, 1980 or beyond, if you hadn't done your copyright termination notices for your 1978 or 79 or early 80s recordings, um, you lost the opportunity, unfortunately, and it would you know remain with the copyright claimant, which is the record label. Gotcha. Okay, so there's a window. Do, do record labels not want folks to know about this? I would assume they don't. Yeah, 100% absolutely um, they don't want people to know about it. Because as it as it lapses and passes by, then they're in the clear, and they get to keep these sound recordings and the publishing companies the same way. You know, people that were tied into deals that they they had no idea that they could ever get out of. You know, here's a second chance to get out of it and uh, go make a deal with a, a third party label, or you know, at the very least, put it up um, digitally, collect the money themselves, maybe press some up and sell them at shows, whatever they want to do, it's, it's theirs to do. Um, this is a U.S. law only, so these copyright you know, claimants would remain, you know, they would still own it for the rest of the world. The, uh, once again, the website is copyrightterminationexperts.com, and folks can see information there, and they can contact you. And again, the 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 service you guys are providing, it's a an actual lawyer, uh, is is completely free, and I, I guess it's just in hopes that you will get some work out of this otherwise. But you are literally doing this for free, right? I'm not going to get in trouble yeah. by saying that. Well, we're, we're, yeah, we, we do all the uh, preparation of the terminations, we, um, all the research, all the preparation, all the, we send it out certified mail and file it. The artists are responsible for the recordation fee to the U.S. Copyright Office, which is uh, traditionally about $140. It ranges, the, the lowest it could be is 105 and then it could go up from there. If you, um, it's, it's based, uh, the Copyright Office charges by the line, so the, you know, so anyway, you can go on. You could go on uscopyright.gov and see that. But everything is spelled out on on our website, copyrightterminationexperts.com. So it's from April 1980 until when? Yeah, at this stage, going to be say from April 20, you know, April 22nd, 1980 till um, let's see. So it's. Uh, you, you you can give up to ten years' notice, so we could still we could send a termination notice in for something that came out in ninety two, but you know it will not terminate till twenty twenty seven. Gotcha. Okay, so you're and you're happy to hear from everybody. I, I, yeah, I know that you've told me this off the air that you've worked for some giant, uh, some huge hits, things that get played a hundred times on the radio every day. Can you? Is there any? I don't know how, how public people are with this information. Can you tell us who some of the huger acts are? Well, I mean, we're doing terminations for the Go Go's right now, so those are that was you know talk a multi million yeah uh, dollar you know selling album. We've done them for um, Jethro Tull, not their you know big albums, but there's a big name you know Todd Rundgren, Stephen Bishop. Um, okay, gotcha. So real, real folks, and these folks are going to get the rights back and re put out the records themselves. How interesting, right? And, and, and also, this is publishing as well. So you know, a lot of people um, that. You know, it all has to do with the everyone was, you know, young and naive and, you know, signed their first deal and, you know, wasn't sure. And, you know, maybe later on it felt like an indentured servitude, but maybe they just didn't realize they can get out of that publishing deal and they can get out of that record deal and get back the U.S. copy, you know, rights of these things. And, uh, you know, the vast, we, we've dealt with tons of uh, British acts as well, but the you know, vast majority of people are U.S. based and, Regardless of where you're from, the U.S. was probably 
one of your biggest territories, if not your biggest territory. So, you know, having the U.S. copyright on something is is a pretty good thing. Oh yeah, especially if your song's getting played on the radio at all, just to get that publishing back is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Double your money. All right, Dan Perla, folks uh, can go to copyrightterminationexperts.com, and I've put a link to that on the playlist uh, for today's program. And I hope can you- I can I throw in one more thing? Sure, there, Michael. Yeah, please. Um, there is another law that we do work for work with as well called it's 304C, and that is a publishing the 56 year terminations. And I know you have a lot of heritage artists from you know way back when that wrote you know some very interesting songs and whatnot we did a termination for a gentleman named john claude gamo who was a lead singer and writer of rhythm of the rain by the cascades i think it was like a top four bmi song of all time we've done terminations for you know songs that solomon burke wrote chris montez i mean a variety of people from that era as well doug kershaw so that's another thing too is it's the 35 year termination that you know deals with both sound recordings and publishing, but for on the publishing side, there's the 56-year terminations as well. So people that wrote songs from the early 60s, and you know, could have been just a one-hit wonder or whatever, but it might have been a huge hit, and uh, that person can get the rights back to that. I gotta say, I'm surprised these laws exist, just because it seems so uh, anti-business, and there's such a pro-business. Uh, climate going on, but I'm I'm glad it does. Dan Perloff, uh, thanks for joining us, and I think I'll see you soon. Right on. All right, Michael. Thank you very much. Sure. Bye bye. Right. Bye bye. Uh, that's Dan Perloff again from CopyrightTerminationExperts.com. That's how you can contact him if you're looking for information uh, about how to get your rights back. <laughs>
All right, there are the Mersey Beats and Tony Crane, MBE, the lead guitarist, lead vocalist, original uh, member of the band, joins us. They had eight, he's had eight top 40 hits in the UK. You are from, you were born in Liverpool, is that right? That's right, yes, I was born right here. It's good to talk to you, Michael, anyway, this morning, this Saturday morning. Yes, I was born in Liverpool. I always have this uh, this picture of Liverpool being a, a place with lots of sailors coming in and out and bringing records back from United States, from other places. And so you guys had access maybe to music a little earlier uh, than other folks. Is that is that a, a correct picture? Well, as I say, um, when where I lived, a place called Park Lane, which, which was direct access from the docks coming up, there was all these shops and different things with all different nationalities of people running them and if there was a record shop there the record shop would have all records that had been brought in by the sailors and from little obscure labels in america uh, that's how we got to know all these um labels and these different people uh, things like arthur alexander and people like that and um i, I vaguely remember when um well we first heard money by barrett strong I thought, God, what kind of a record is this? This is absolutely fantastic. What label is this? And then when I looked into it, I found out it was, I think it was Hitsville, it was their label was originally called. And then it was eventually the first the first single on Tamla Motown. From then on, I was a great fan of everything that came out on Motown. And most other people were. But what we did when we actually started the band we used to go round to NEMS, Brian Epstein, at NEMS record shop. And if we did a lunchtime session at the cavern, right after the lunchtime session, we'd all run round to the shop to find out what new records he'd brought in because he had them imported from the States. And it was the only record shop around there besides what the sailors had brought in that had all these fantastic records that were coming in. So what we did, we had an unknown, we, we had an agreement with the rest of the bands that um, whoever did the song first on stage, it was their song, so the other bands wouldn't touch it then. So like we'd, we'd have a, uh, we'd run around to NEMS after doing a lunchtime session and find out which new records had come out and if we liked one of them, we'd rush back to the cavern, rehearse it and then do it that night the same night, the same day, and then, then the Beatles wouldn't do it then, or or whoever, <laughs> Jerry and the Bassmakers, so it was good. Did your folks have a record player? Did they, did they uh, were they worried about the sort of new music coming in, or, or what was their attitude towards the rock and roll? Not really, they loved it. I mean, I'm part of a big family, I had six sisters and two brothers, and I was the baby of the family, so they were all was growing up as I was growing up and um, they looked after me a lot and and I'd hear these fantastic records come over on the radio and um, I plead with them to buy them for me for my birthday or for Christmas or whatever and it was fantastic like the first time I heard anything you know the first time I heard little Richard's voice I just couldn't believe my ears I couldn't believe what was going on at uh, this this guy who was screaming his head off singing these fantastic <laughs> rock and roll songs you know yeah and uh, you know we'd never really heard a gospel singer sing like that before mm. and it was just incredible and it just changed everybody's lives when they saw that and 
And then my sisters took me to a cinema to see Elvis in Love Me Tender. And at the time, I was playing the trumpet in um, the local uh, church band because I was like an altar boy and I was, I was playing the trumpet and this, we used to go marching every Sunday, playing all these hymns and marches and things. And once I saw Elvis in Love Me Tender, I just came back and I never played the trumpet again from that day. <laughs> I sort of pleaded with my parents to buy me a guitar. I said, all I want to do is have a guitar and, and sing, because I was already singing at parties from a little kid. Yeah, I think your first band, if I'm right, starts around 1960, right? The Mavericks, it becomes the Pacifics, uh, it, it eventually becomes the Mersey Beats. I think that, that, that name around 1962, is that right? Yeah, well, it was January 62, but what actually happened was we we were sort of playing round. I was playing round in a duo with my cousin, sort of around Liverpool, uh, not doing much because we both liked the same sorts of things. So we were arguing over who was going to do the lead singing on the songs. But then when I formed the band, late 1960, we called ourselves the Mavericks, and it was a four-piece band. And we were doing really well. We were playing all around Liverpool. Built up quite a good name. But then Bob Wallace saw us, who was the booking agent for the Cavern. And I'd been down the Cavern a couple of times and wasn't very impressed with it. It was a smelly place and <laughs> it was awful. There was only one way in and one way out and there was no air conditioning and everything. And it was. Uh, but the one thing about it is whoever band you saw down there, they sounded fabulous. It was the acoustics of all the archways, and it just had a great sound, especially the bass guitar. They used, uh, the bass guitar always amplified a lot, and so did the bass drum with the drums. So it just gave it an incredible beat to every song that you played. you know. So I went down when Bob Wallace saw us as the Mavericks, and he approached me and said, you're the leader of the band. I said, yeah, that's right. He said, I'd like you to become resident at the cavern. What do you think about it? And he said, uh, I said, well, I don't know. I'm not very impressed with the place. What do you think? And he said, well, number one, you'll have to turn professional because I was only semi-professional. I was working in the Royal Liver building. I was uh, working there as an insurance guard. And he said, I said, why will I have to go professional? He said, well, you've got to do lunchtime sessions. And you'd be playing in the evening at least three times a week. Uh, I said, well, how does that fit in? And he said, well, you'll be exchanging with the Beatles. The Beatles were already doing the evening, plus lunchtime sessions. So they wanted us to do the alternate days with the lunchtime sessions with the Beatles. So all this was talked through and everything, right, to have a think about it. And in the end, we said, OK, then, we'll do it. And my family were up in arms when I decided to give up my job because it was a really good job with good future. And um, I said, no, I'm turning professional, so I've got to do this. So they weren't too pleased. And my father said, well, go for it. Whatever you do, give it your best. Am I right that you guys were uh, ma managed by Brian Epstein, but just for a little while? What happened? Yeah, well, what happened was we were actually the second, well, he, he sort of signed the big three and then he signed the Mersey Beats. And he said, he kept saying to us, I said, well, you know, what are you going to do with us? He said, well, just stay being resident at the cavern and I'll get round to you 
and um, we'll do something because he said I'm busy trying to get the Beatles away at the moment and um, obviously he was backwards and forwards to London um, taking the Beatles around doing auditions here there and everywhere and um, but he bought them fantastic suits really great suits because he didn't like the way they dressed he said I'll never get you on television if you dress in this black leather and the black t-shirts all the time he bought them new suits. Then I found out that he bought them another set of suits for a change of dress. So I said to him, well, when are you going to buy us suits? He said, well, there's plenty of time. As soon as I get the Beatles away and get them going. I said, well, how long is that going to take? He said, I don't know. It could be two months. could be six months. could be anything. So you'll just have to wait around. So in the meantime, we, we were fed up waiting around. And they said, no, we're going to have to leave you and try and get a recording contract somewhere else ourselves, you know. So and that, it sounds silly, sounds stupid, but uh, it was all over suits. It's all it was. <laughs> and I regret it to this day. So you do end up getting signed fairly quickly, I mean, for a band, getting signed um, to Fontana. But I, I read that you were first signed, or, or that Decca offered you a deal, but you, you didn't take it because it was so ridiculously in the label's favor. Can you tell us what that was about? Well, I'll tell you what it is. How we got our recording contract was by accident. We went into a competition in Liverpool with all different acts were on it. And the prize of winning the competition was a recording contract with Decca Records. So we won the competition, we won the recording contract, and just before we looked at the contract and signed it, Bob Waller said, I don't think you should sign that. I said, why? We've got to, you know, be offered. He said, well, he's heard that because the Decca Records had turned down the Beatles, they're now signing everybody <laughs> who's anybody in Liverpool, Manchester, everyone. They're offering everyone a recording contract. So he said, you're just going to be left on the shelf. And I thought, well, we've already done that, so we're not going to do it. So we took his advice and said no and uh, carried on being resident at the cavern. And then one day we were playing at the cavern doing a lunchtime session and um, we got approached by, well, Bob Waller told us, he said, there's a guy here uh, up from London and he's auditioning for bands. They want to sign a band from Liverpool and uh, he's doing auditions. He said, I said, yeah, what, what does that mean? He said, well, they want to know, can they use your equipment once you've finished your lunchtime session? I said, well, okay then. He said, but will you wait around? I said, well, I will, because I don't want anything damaged. So they used our equipment on stage. So they did these four auditions, and they, they did about 10, 15 minutes each, each band played. And then at the end of that, they came in, and I said, can we go now? Because, you know, we we want to take our equipment down. And um, they said, no, the A&R man wants to have a word with you. So and he came and this guy called Jack Baverstock, he'd come up from London for Phillips Records. And he explained to me, he said, we're forming a new label, part of Phillips, called Fontana Records, and we'd like to offer you a recording contract. I said, but we haven't auditioned. Why is that? He said, well, I don't like any of the other bands. I'm not going to offer them a contract, but I like the Mercy Beats. I said, absolutely great. I'd love you to start the new label. So that's how we got it, and in the end, Bob Waller just said, well, you've got to go with that. You know, it's a brand new label, you're launching the new label under Phillips Records, you know. 
go on Fontana Records and that'll be it. And then within, I think within four weeks, we'd been down, we'd driven down to London, uh, we'd recorded four songs, and we came back, didn't know what was going to be the A-side of the first single, and we were told two songs picked out, a ballad, It's Love That Really Counts, by a Bacharach song, and a Fortune Teller which was a very popular song we used to do in the cavern. It was We were like the only people who did that song. It was very, very popular. So I said, well, that'll be easy. We'll play it to the crowd and get them to vote, which should be the A-side. And we thought, oh, we're bound to vote for Fortune Teller because that was the most popular song we did on stage. Anyway, we played the two songs, and Bob Waller did it all, and he got everyone to vote. And they all voted for the slope that really counts. So because of that, that's why we got labelled as a ballad band. Uh, although the ballads was only a small part of our live show. Uh, the next record was I Think of You, which I believe was top ten, and it was backed with Mr. Moonlight. Now, your version is very similar to the Beatles. So who's who was doing Mr. Moonlight first? Well, we were doing it first, and, and then we recorded it first as well, because um, it became very, very popular. Um, it was really good. And it's such a fabulous song that we we still get so many requests for that. Yeah, it's a great one. Song yeah. All the time. yeah, yeah, it's a great song. So, were you guys becoming, uh, you know, heartthrobs? Were you guys becoming uh, famous? Well, yeah, I suppose so. Also, the bit on um, the other side of Mister Moonlight, I think of you. That was because um, a guy just sort of walked into the recording studio. We were recording something else. And he was a songwriter, and he said, here, I've got this song, and I think this will be perfect for the Mersey Beach, because you're a ballad band. And he played this song literally in the studio. Uh, I think of you, and we said, oh, that's okay. That's not too bad, but it was just him. Him playing the piano and singing, and that was it. So we liked the song. We said, we'll have to go away and work out an arrangement to it. Because on the song, it has the little... Uh, musical intro da, 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 da. that wasn't on it the song we actually had to make that up in the studio and really that that's what helped sell it really the the song because it was one of those when we recorded it we we recorded it through the night we came out in the morning at daylight and we said well that record will either be a monster hit or it won't sell a copy because it was so different nothing was being done Latin American style or or ballady style and everything and it wasn't up tempo or anything so we said we'll have to wait and see what happens and then when it came out it was only selling slowly and then the Beatles did a television program there was a program here called uh, Jukebox Jury and they had four different people on the panel they used to have to vote on new releases that came out well, the Beatles were the whole panel on this one. And uh, towards the end of the program, they played I Think of You. When he said it's by the Mercy Beats, they all jumped up. Yeah, they're all friends of ours. They're fantastic. Yeah, it's going to be a big hit, this one. So they didn't have time to talk much about it. They were all jumping up. And the very next week, it went straight into the top ten. <laughs> so we owe a lot to the Beatles for doing that, to give it the push. 
But it, I think it deserved being there because it actually stayed in the charts for about 40 weeks of that year. Yeah, I, I, one thing I, I noticed listening to some of your songs is that almost none of them are over three minutes long. They're all these kind of short, you know, the the, uh, the hooks come quickly and, uh, you know, they're just very wonderful little slices of, of, of pop music. Well, that was mainly uh, the record company told us to do that. Because when we'd go in with a song to record, we'd sort of rehearsed it, and it'd say if it was three and a half minutes long, he'd say, no, you'll have to shorten that. He said, the radio stations won't play it. Hmm. And I went, that's a bit silly, you know. And um, <laughs> that's why a lot of records from the early 60s, some of them, things like Runaway and things like that, they're only just over two minutes long. So they, they, there was the thing going round at the time saying that if you made a record, the average, the exact time was something like two minutes, 15 seconds was just about right. Otherwise, the radio stations wouldn't play it. Oh, that's a bit silly, isn't it? You know, you guys are famous for using fire, Gibson Firebird guitars, which are those kind of uh, zigzag shape, almost guitars. How did that start? Upside down shape, we call them. <laughs> it's like an ordinary guitar, but it's upside down. Hmm. What it was is... Um, I went to see a show in Liverpool uh, to see the Everly Brothers, and they'd come over, and they had a guitarist in the band who were backing them, just a trio were backing them, uh, called Don Peak, and he was playing one of these funny-looking guitars, and he had a Gibson amplifier I'd never seen before with a piggyback thing. And anyway, never thought any more about it, but then a few months later... I was in London and I went to a record shop to buy some guitar strings and that in Shaftesbury Avenue. And uh, they had all these guitars up in glass cases above the counter. I said, oh, there, then. that's the ones. I said, what make of those guitars? He said, well, they're called Gibson Firebirds, and, but they're not out for another six months. I said, oh, no, no, I want to buy one now. In fact, I'll buy them all off you. Because they had like a three pickup one, a two pickup one, a one pickup one, and then they had the bass guitar, which was called a Thunderbird. I said, "Well, you know, if you want, I'll buy them." He said, "Well, they're not for sale yet. We can't. They're not allowed to sell them." So anyway, I talked them into selling me them all, <laughs> and say on the basis that it, we still had to pay full price for them, but um, on the basis that we did advertise free advertising for them. So it was in all the music papers and the Mercy Beat to play uh, Gibson guitars and all from Shaftesbury Avenue and Selma. It was Selma's the shop name. And uh, so we did that and then we stuck with them then because um, every time over the years when we people see us, if we try and play a different type of guitar, because I have numerous guitars, I collect them, um, people, oh, it's not the Mercy Beat because you're not playing a Gibson Firebird. So we, we have to use them all the time, really. And do you still have those original ones that you bought? Yes. Well, I have some of them. Uh, the the three pickup one I bought, which was gold-plated and like top-of-the-range one, I found it was very hard to play because it had three pickups and you couldn't get the plectrum in between the strings to do it. I never ever thought of hiring the action and playing bottleneck on it. Which is, So I took it back to the shop and I said, uh, I can't really play this, so I'll swap it for something else. So they gave me a, um, a Gibson acoustic jumbo, a 12-string. But what happened was, when I put it back into the shop, the next day 
Brian Jones came in from the Stones, saw it and went, oh, yeah. And he told him it was mine, but, uh, you know, I brought it back to the shop. And he said, well, I only want one to play bottleneck on, so that'll just do me fine. So he bought it. So whenever you see the Stones um, doing the early stuff where he's playing bottleneck on it, it's um, that was mine. Yeah. That was that one. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, Don't Turn Around, Wishing and Hoping was another uh, huge hit for you. And I, was, I saw a clip on uh, on YouTube. There's a bunch of great clips of the Mersey Beats. One of them is you and Dusty Springfield both uh, singing that song. There's tons of, of clips of you guys miming uh, your songs on, on television. It's, it's quite interesting to go on YouTube and just see all this stuff that sort of pops up there. Were you guys on television quite a bit? Well, we were. We were on... Um for, for instance, Top of the Pops, which was the main uh, the main television program for any anyone new coming out. If you were on Top of the Pops, it meant your record was in the top 40, but it's going up. As soon as the record stopped and started going down, you went on again. But while it was climbing the charts or was staying in the one position, you were on every week. So when I Think of You came out, uh, because... Top of the Pops only started, I think it was January 64, and that was touch lucky, because I think it was just a straight in the top ten then. So we didn't do the first program ever. We did the second one, then we did the third, then we did the fourth. Then we were on literally every week, because I think it was slowly going up the top ten, and when it got to number four, it stayed there. And while it stayed at number four, of course we were on Top of the Pops again, every week doing it. So we seemed to be on an awful lot. And then as soon as the follow-up came out, uh, Don't Turn Around, we were on top of the pops every week then. And then so we seemed to be on an awful lot. And there was other programs that came out. Um, Thank You Lucky Stars was one that was filmed in Birmingham. And that was on over a weekend. It was Saturday. And we seemed to be on that nearly every week as well. Because at the time, through 64... Uh, a lot of people in the papers would say we were the the biggest draw live after the Beatles and the Stones because we were always in the magazines, all these girly magazines. We were always either on the front page or the double page in the middle. I think the girls seemed to like the way we dressed with the the frilly shirts and the um, different things and the Spanish Spanish dancers type suits and things, you know. And uh, the girls seemed to think it was very sexy. So it was, uh, you know, so we were in all the papers and on the television all the time. So it was good. I have this this vision of this incredible population explosion. The the baby boomers and all these teenagers. I mean, you yourself at this time are 19 or 20 years old. It sounds like extremely exciting. And just that the whole sense of change in the air was, was palpable. Is that right? Well, it was unbelievable because we hadn't known anything else literally from since I left school and then left my job. It was just pandemonium. Really. It was just, everything was happening so quickly and you didn't have time to breathe and, once we made our first record, of course, we started doing gigs all around the country. And we hadn't really travelled before, you know, besides going to London to make the records. And uh, so that was amazing. We were travelling all over the place. And then being part of the whole scene was just unbelievable. You never really thought you were part of anything. 
you just did it because you were doing it and you loved music and you loved recording and and having success was the icing on the cake. You know, you didn't you didn't expect it in a million years. You know. Let me remind folks, we're talking to Tony Crane from the Mersey Beats, and folks can get more information at themerseybeats.co.uk for information. Of course, the band still plays, so there's uh, gigs and information about all that stuff on the website uh, right there. Uh, One of the things I noticed that that you guys do did is that you recorded EPs, which is sort of a format that never sort of caught on in the United States. And some of your records did come out in the U.S., but never there seemed like Fontana never sort of made a big dent with you guys here. Is is that why? Why? Why did? Why not? I think what it was um, when the record company approached us and he said, "We're going to launch you in America." because your records haven't come out yet over there. So we're going to launch you. And we were high in the charts with Wishing and Hoping. And he said, we'll quickly arrange a tour of uh, television shows, radio shows, and we'll fly into New York. We'll have all the papers there and and everything else. And uh, we'll launch you with this Wishing and Hoping because it was a bit back-rack song anyway. So they arranged this quickly tour. We... We arrived at the airport, and it was all people to meet us and all the papers. We got there, and we got to the first television show literally within an hour after we landed. And they said, what are you going to do? So we're going to do launch Wishing and Hoping. And they said, well, it's already in the charts by Dusty Springfield. I said, well, why is that? Because she was on Phillips Records. So un- unbeknown to us, she She'd gone into the studio. Once we were in the charts with it, she decided to cover it, but get it out in America before ours came out, which was a bit naughty. (laughs) And so we had to quickly go through our repertoire and do different songs on the TV shows. So it was a bit confusing, really. There we are. But I think um, later on, I think the only sort of um, big success we had was later on, I think... I think Sorrow got got to number one in Texas or something later on. Hmm. Uh, a couple more yeah. great hits, I Stand Accused, Really Mystified, uh, which you are a co-writer of. Uh, some great records. I, I, some of those produced by uh, Kit Lambert, and I, I know that Elvis Costello covered both of those songs. I think the story I heard, and maybe, I don't know if you can tell us, has he ever, did he ever get in touch with you? Is that, that is sort of one of his childhood uh, records, and, you know, he just loved the Mercy Beats and ended up covering both of those records. He did get in touch and said he was such a big fan. Would we mind if he covers them? And I said, well, of course, you know, I'd be delighted if you do it, you know. And, um, and still to this this day, I like I like his versions of the songs. He really did. He did good, you know. He, he didn't change them about much at all, and he did them because he liked them the way they were, you know. Yeah, well, the, the Tony Colton uh, version of "I Stand Accused" is a million times slower, and you guys had the uh, the great sense to sort of speed it up and sort of turn it into a beat number, which is uh, which is a genius. And it's always interesting when someone like Elvis uh, covers a cover. You know, he's clearly covering your version of that song, not oh, Tony, yes. Tony yeah, Colton's yeah. version. Tell me about Kip Lambert uh, as a producer, because I know that you ended up being uh, managed by Stamp and Cambert, uh, the guys who managed the Who. Uh, they're notorious kind of figures what were they like in the recording studio well it was only kit lambert really who did it and um, chris stamp didn't really come into the studio or if he was there he wouldn't say a word he'd just sit there listening and um kit had these ideas 
Um, but he'd really leave it to us. You know, if we decided on a song, he said, what are you going to record? And he said, we've got this song. Okay, he said, um, do you need any session men to come in? And um, we we said, okay, we'll do um, when we did Icelandic Cues. That was a mistake because the Icelandic Cues we'd heard was a different song on the radio. So when we asked for the sheet music, this Tony Colton song with the same title came through. And we liked that even more. So we said, <laughs> okay, yeah, well, let's do that. But it was a ballad. We said, we, we see it beating it up and uh, doing everything, putting all the harmonies to it and everything, which is what we did. And um, But then just when we said, what we'll do as well, we'll record it live. No overdubs, nothing. We'll just sing it live and we'll play it live. That's the way we did in the, in the first records. So we said, okay. But then Keith Moon turned up. Keith Moon turned up with his current girlfriend and proceeded to lie on the floor um, with his girlfriend and making out. And we said, we'll have to give him something to do because no one could concentrate on what they were doing. So he said, well, can I play drums on it? I said, no, you can't play drums on it now. He said, we'd have to give me something to play to keep me busy. So we found a gong in the, the corner of the studio it was all covered in dust and everything. So we said, the best thing to do, um, you play the gong, but don't hit it until I give you the the signal. And he goes, okay. I said, but it won't be it won't be till the end, and you'll only hit it maybe once, maybe twice. He says, okay, I'll do that. So we kept him busy. So we did a take, and it was really good the take that we did. But towards the end, I left it right to the end, almost the fade out. And I gave him the signal, and he started hitting this gong, and he wouldn't stop. <laughs> he was banging away at this gong all the way through. But that was the record that came out. So we couldn't, we didn't want to do it again because it was such a good take. So if you ever hear I Stand Accused, that mad gong being played at the end, that was Keith Moon. Uh, yeah, we heard it earlier this morning. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, he. What a what a character! What fun times it is now. The at the the Mersey Beats sort of fold, and uh, you and Billy uh, form the Merseys. Uh, it is very interesting as I, I look at sort of the history of this band because you know 1960 to 1965, 66 to 19 you know 69. Those the time of music and culture and everything just changed so very quickly during that time. I mean, was there a feeling that the sort of cute mercy sound was going out? Not really. No, it was uh, the way it came about is we got Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp as our managers. We'd recorded, um, we'd had two singles out and then we were looking for the next song uh, to do. So we, while we were looking for one, two of the lads left. Aaron Williams and John Banks, guitarist and a drummer. So we said, what shall we do? We'll look for somebody else to take the place. And it's Kit Lambert who came up and said, no, you started off as a duo. He said, let's let's give it a go. And we'll shorten the name. People were calling us the Merseys then anyway, like they call the Rolling Stones the Stones. So he said, we'll just we'll bring the record out as the Merseys and we'll launch you on a big tour with the Who. And he was the Who, Jimmy Cliff, Benson Davis Group, all this on this big tour. And he said, and you'll close the first half and you'll be like second on the bill and it will be uh, the Merseys. He said, we'll find a song for you. 
uh, to launch you launch the new act on this and he said I'll, I'll work out the act like he does because he was an assistant director on films um, Kent Lambert and he said we'll work out a big stage show where you come on either side you don't play guitars uh, you touch each other as you come to the middle with the spotlight and all the girls will scream and you do all this and we'll form a band behind you I said yeah but we haven't got a song yet well, while we were having one of these meetings, uh, the Who's road manager uh, came into the meeting to sit in on the meeting and said, I've just heard a great song. He said, I'm sure the Merseys would do it great. Uh, so he brought it in and played it. We said, yeah, it's okay, but it needs an awful lot of work. And that was sorrow. And uh, we, we sort of liked the song, but we thought we're really going to have to do a lot of work on this because there was no harmonies on it, and we were famous for doing harmonies and then backing harmonies and then repeating, and we said it needs some more words adding to it. So we went away and rehearsed it. We, did, we had the ranger come in, do an arrangement for all the brass, but the problem was when we went in to record it, there was a strike or a musician junior who run all everything here, and um, they were saying, no, but, but we're fed up with people overdubbing, so we're going to put a stop to it all. So you're going to have to put the vocal on the same time as the backing. Well, there was that many people in the studio. The studio was completely full, so they had to make a little glass box for us to stand inside to do this vocal, otherwise there'd be overspill. But they said, and you've got no chance of overdubbing or anything else. He said, you've got to do it at the same time. But it worked out well, and then when it came out on the tour, as we were touring around the UK, it went. It was going phenomenally well. All the girls were screaming and everything, and, and uh, it was going up the charts. And by the time we finished the charts, it was about number three or something in the charts, um, which was good. So that was a good way of launching the Mercies then. Yeah, you can't argue with with a with top ten hit for sure. Uh, I well, believe, right. yeah, I believe Pete Townsend wrote "So Sad About Us" for you guys, which you you did record before the Who, and eventually the Merseys split as well. And I think you formed, you sort of made a new version of the New Mersey Beats and went into the cabaret circuit. How long did you do that for? Well, I did. I'll just finish telling you as well. When we we did "Sorrow." Um, the Beatles were on the phone to us all the time because they were making, starting to make the new album and starting to do new records. They used to ring us up all the time and say, um, why don't you come in and watch us record and it'd be nice to see you. And John Lennon said, because I want to produce and write your follow-up to Sorrow. And the biggest compliment then, they said, Sorrow was just, they said, it's the best record we've heard for many years and if we would have done it it would have been exactly the same we loved the way you've used the harmonies and and everything else in the brass section so we spent our time then going round to watching the Beatles record and then we'd sit with John Lennon going through different songs and then we decided on a song called I'll Be Back uh, that we were going to do as to follow up to Sorrow went back and told Ket Lambert about it and he said no you can't do that he said I'm your record producer I said, but, you know, we're talking about John Lennon here. I said, he wants to come and do it, and George wanted to play guitar on it. Ringo wanted to play drums. Paul was too busy doing his other things. 
and um, he wasn't impressed at all. He said, no, I want you to record a Pete Townsend song. I really, because he had the publishing, didn't he? So he had the publishing on the song, so he was going to make money out of it. But we weren't too pleased about it. We loved the song, so sad about us. We loved the demo was virtually what the Who did. And we said, well, we love the way the demo that he's done. The best thing to do is just take his voice off and put mine and Billy's on. Because it was fabulous. It was just the Who playing. It was great. And he said, no, I don't want that. He said, I see it with a big orchestra. And God, so it didn't quite work. So there we are. Anyway, we were a bit disappointed because we could have had John Lennon doing it. And instead, we had Kit Lambert on an ego trip. What led to the end of the Mersey Beats, of the Merseys? Well, all as it was, it just went by it by. We sort of carried on. We were doing gigs. We were doing lots of gigs as the Merseys. And we, we were touring around and uh, filling everywhere. It was all the girls would, you know, the girls would be screaming. And uh, we had barriers in front of the stage everywhere we played. And, and for a while, we had to be smuggled into the back. We were in the papers a lot. People were like climbing on the roof of the hotels and lowering themselves down to our window. And uh, there was all mad things going on. There was riots in a lot of the places where we played. And it was just pandemonium everywhere. And then what made it worse, we did a, um, a the, the, there's a newspaper here. They, they heard about us. Um, we, we'd had some girls staying in the hotel with us in, in a venue. Uh, after the show and uh, the newspaper rung us up and said does this happen a lot I said well yeah it does of course yeah. are you prepared to talk about it we went well yeah you know we don't want to be telling any lies and um, we we had in front of our drum it had free love on it and we were promoting that you see at the time which is Kit Lambert's idea anyway um, the newspaper came round watched the show saw us with all the girls lining up for the autographs afterwards, saw everybody picking out the girls, saying uh, we're having a party after, just standing on one side. And uh, he saw all this going on. And um, the next minute, uh, the news of the world was the Sunday paper. I remember it coming out on the, the following Sunday. And it was big headlines, the Mersey Beats promote free love and everything. And... <laughs> I remember my mother coming in because she wouldn't allow that paper into the house because we were a good Catholic family and everything. And um, I'd been an altar boy and everything. So she hit me on the head with the paper. My brother had brought it in from, from his friends. She hit me on the head with it and she said, um, this is disgusting, all these things. Do you really get up to all this? And I said, well, you know, it, it happens. You know, you can't do anything. Well, you shouldn't have told everybody. It's terrible. I feel ashamed. Anyway, then I got up and went in, and my dad said to me, any chance of a, a job in your band? <laughs> <laughs> so he was behind it. <laughs> so, but, I mean, that, that made things even worse then, because after that article, we, we, we could hardly play anywhere, because the place was heaving with the girls, and also the boyfriends were out to get us, and everything, so they were like bodyguards and everything, and... So that went on for a couple of years. We were bringing we were bringing records out as the Merseys, but it wasn't doing anything. But this went on, uh, fizzled out sort of by '69, and then Billy sort of by seven. Billy Kinsley said, "Oh no," he said, uh, "I want to go and do my own thing." And 
and um, he left, and that, and I carried on. And so after the end of the 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 Merseys and uh, your time in the the chicken in the basket circuit, the the uh, the cabaret circuit, you, you end up getting back with Billy and. Uh, the Mersey Beats have kind of been going uh, pretty strongly, I mean, for the last 20 years or so. How many gigs a year do you guys play about nowadays? We usually do two major tours a year, one in the spring, one in the autumn. And it's usually between, usually about 40 dates each time. Folks can get information on where you're touring if they go to themerseybeats.co.uk and uh, information about uh, just everything about the band. Check that stuff out. Uh, I want to wrap this up by playing the song Sorrow, which we've just talked about. I love, this is, There's a lot of versions of this song, and, and yours is definitely my favorite. Well, how we did that was we found out uh, many years later that we, we should have had 50% of the royalties on that because we changed the song about that much. Mm. Um, from the original song by uh, Feldman, Gotter and Goldstein. Um We, uh, it was just a simple little ditty, we call it, a little song. We added all the harmonies, all the answering harmony. We even answered, uh, included extra words to the song and the lyrics to it. And um, But what we found out as well over the years that each person who's covered it since then have covered our version. Nothing to do with the original version. Well, let's hear it now. Tony Crane, thanks so much for visiting with us. Uh, such interesting stories. Thanks, Michael. Nice talking to you. Last night. 